Thank you, Pastor Mark. Thank you for that prayer of supplication. If you turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll continue in this series. We're backing up just a little bit since I addressed chapter 2 last time, but I couldn't resist because it talked about the cornerstone, and it was our first, I was our 30th anniversary, and so with the Lord's permission, I jumped ahead, but I'm backing up now to make sure that we cover all the text. Um, this, this morning, I'm sure that, that many of you are thinking about, have visions of um, Thanksgiving, gathering with your family, with friends, neighbors, and having a good hearty meal of uh, uh, maybe venison and wild turkey, some Indian corn and some cod and some bass. Oh, wait a minute, that's the first Thanksgiving. Okay, back in 1621, that would have been on the menu, but I doubt that might be on your table this Thanksgiving, but if it is, more power to you. Um, but anyway, you know, as we think about that first Thanksgiving, uh, I know many times as you go back and look in the history of that first Thanksgiving there, 1621 at uh, Plymouth uh, Plantation, uh, one of the, the, the names that typically comes to our minds is uh, Squanto, the Paltuex uh, Native American uh, that uh, kind of made the day, if you will. Uh, he helped the early co colonial settlers, the pilgrims, uh, through some tough winters. He gave them guidance as to how to plant their crops and then he brokered peace deals with the neighboring tribes uh, to get food for them when they ran out of food. So they, you know, Squanto kind of emerged as being kind of a pivotal person in the first Thanksgiving, 1621. But, but probably a lot more credit needs to go to four women that I dare say many of you probably don't know and I didn't until I just did a little bit of research but uh, really credit ought to be given to uh, Eleanor Billington and Elizabeth Hopkins and Mary Brewster and Susanna White because they were the four women that cooked the very first Thanksgiving on the uh, American continent. They were uh, there at Plymouth uh, Plantation in 1621. In fact, they were the only four surviving women from the Mayflower that were left in the Plymouth Plantation settlement uh, as you well know, out of the 100 people that came over on the Mayflower, uh, only 50 were surviving at this time, and these were the only four adult women. And of course, they got elected to cook that day. And so we owe a, a great debt, or well, the people that were eating that day owe a great debt to Eleanor, Elizabeth, Mary, and Susanna. Well, with that little bit of trivia maybe taken care of, I think everybody understands the significance of that first Thanksgiving. It was a religious observance, if you will, of the colonial settlers, the pilgrims, recognizing the providence of God, recognizing the provision of God, recognizing the protection of God over them that enabled them to continue to survive in this their, their new home in a relatively harsh, though bountiful, new world, America. And so on this first Thanksgiving, it was a very much a religious observance to turn their attention and focus to Almighty God to say thank you to God for protecting them and providing for them. Now subsequent Thanksgivings took on more of a civil type of a, uh, a, a flavor and were more civil observances than religious observances. But undoubtedly those first settlers, those first pilgrims understood the significance of turning to God and saying thank you. Now as we look at the text that I've described to you in First Peter, we'll begin looking at verse 18 and go through verse 25, Lord willing. But Peter doesn't explicitly call upon the 
early Christians to offer thanksgiving. This is not a message of thanksgiving per se. But I think it's fair to say that implied in the text and in the message that Peter's delivering to the early Christians in that first century, there's a great call for thanksgiving. Because Peter is reminding these early believers in a world, in a time, in a season that is, is littered with, with hardship and struggle and challenges. Very much like the world in which we live as 21st century Christians. Even in times like this, even when there are many trials and, and, and hardships for Christians, there is still great reason to give praise to God. There is still great reason for us as God's people to offer thanksgiving to Him. And so I want this to be kind of a challenge to you that as God's people, as we sit around the table with our loved ones this Thanksgiving, we have so much to be thankful to God for. Because as Peter reminds those early Christians, we are the recipients of Almighty God's glorious grace and love and mercy and His, and His forgiveness. And we are the recipients of all the bountiful blessings that, that Peter enumerated in, in the earlier parts of chapter 1 as we looked at this great eternal inheritance that is ours, that is waiting for us in heaven and all the blessings of what it means to be the people of God. And so as we consider the text this morning, I want us to look at the way that God has supernaturally intervened in our lives in such a manner that we ought to be in awe every day. Not just Thanksgiving. We ought to be filled with the spirit of Thanksgiving. Not just at this time of the year. But all through the year. Because God has done great and glorious and wonderful things on behalf of his people. And so I want to begin the message this morning. Looking at chapter 1 verse 18. And we'll read for a few verses there. As we look at what I consider to be our supernatural redemption. Our supernatural redemption, as Peter brings to the attention of those early Christians, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, blemish and without spot. Our thanksgiving begins with our realizing how precious our salvation is. And remembering what a supernatural act God has done in redeeming us from the penalty of our sin. Listen, this supernatural redemption that Peter is making reference to is this very redemption that eliminates the dreadful penalty of our sinfulness. I believe sometimes we take that for granted. We accept the fact that we're Christians and go along and, and, and talk about, oh yes, great to be a Christian and be, have the blessings of God and everything. But just stop and remember how significant, how important our salvation is and the redemption that God provided supernaturally for us. Number one, it eliminates the penalty, the dreadful penalty of our sins. As you turn, hold your place there and turn back to, to Romans in chapter 6, Paul reminds us that one of the awful penalties of being lost in sin is that we were enslaved. We were slaves of sin. We were slaves of Satan. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 and verse 17, 
Or if you want to back up to verse 16 in chapter 6 of Romans, he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you were are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end. Look what he says. And the end of it all, the grand payment of it all, is everlasting life. But also the penalty of sin not only entails being enslaved to sin and wickedness and immorality and all the things that seek to ultimately destroy the soul, including the devil. But the penalty of sin also entailed, if you look there in chapter 6 of Romans, verse 23, we all know what this verse says. For the wages or the penalty of sin is death. Eternal separation from God and all the goodness of God and the love of God and the mercy of God and anything that is positive separated from it forever and ever in a terrible place of torment forever. Listen, our supernatural redemption made possible only by God. And I emphasize supernatural because Paul, I mean Peter goes on to say, you weren't redeemed with corruptible things. Nobody wrote a check to get you out of hell, ladies and gentlemen. There's nothing that you could provide that this earth has that would serve as a payment, not even a down payment, to relieve you of the penalty of your sins. Oh no, it took something much more precious than that. So not only does this supernatural redemption eliminate the dreadful penalty of our salvation, of our sinfulness, but it situates us to experience the saving grace of God. And that's something worth thanking God for. This redemption that God has arranged for you and me. And we'll look at that because Peter says right here that it was the precious blood of the Son of God. Look at verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know, to the average Jew of that day, the minute that Peter mentioned that, I am sure their minds went back to what they considered to be the ultimate redemption or redemptive act of God. And that was back in the book of Exodus, you may recall, when God was using Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And time after time, plague after plague, Moses appealed to, to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Finally, God said, after nine plagues, He told Moses and the people of Israel, I'm going to bring the big kahuga. That's a rough interpretation of Hebrew. But He says, I'm going to bring a plague that will surely cause even Pharaoh to bow 
before God and release my people. Listen to what he said in Exodus in chapter 12, verse 12. God is talking through Moses. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Now you'll notice he didn't say, I'm going to strike the Egyptians. He said, when the death angel comes, this death angel has the authority to kill every firstborn, man and beast. And listen to what he says. Now the blood, the blood of what? The blood of an unblemished firstborn lamb. Every Israelite family was supposed to slaughter a lamb and they would take the blood of that lamb and they would splash it over the lintel of the doorpost and then on each side of the door. Almost call into our minds the sign of a cross. And the, and the blood that was splashed from that unblemished lamb would be a sign because God said in verse 13, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. A sign to them of what? That God was making a promise to them. Yes, the death angel was coming that night. Yes, there would be a horrendous cry of horrific grief from families and households all over the nation of Egypt that night. But this was a sign to them that their God, a God of mercy, a God of grace, would spare them. He says, and when I see the blood... I think about that old hymn we sing so often. When I see the blood, I will pass. I will pass over you. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So you see, God was drawing from the illustration of a previous act of redemptive love that God had done, an act of redemption towards his people going all the way back to the time of bondage in Egypt. And now Peter is saying, here is this precious blood, infinitely, infinitely greater, infinitely more powerful, infinitely more significant than the blood of an animal. Because it would be the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I think about those families huddled, those Jewish families that night. And they talked about it, I'm sure, for generations to come. What a night it must have been. Now you may not think that that blood splashed over the doorpost and the lintel of that family's household was significant but I promise you this that night as the families were gathered after having eaten that Passover lamb just as God instructed their door slammed shut and locked as the sun began to set and the darkness began to creep over the land knowing what God had said through Moses oh listen you may not think that blood means that much to you and me but let me tell you something to that mother or father who was clutching their firstborn in their arms and wondering oh I wonder if God will be able to save me 
my family, my firstborn. I just wonder if the blood is going to be sufficient to do what God said. They could hear the increasing tidal wave of the moans and the groans and the crying and the screaming of the Egyptian mothers and fathers as they cried out in anguish as they watched as their firstborns died in their arms or were dead in their bed and they saw the hand of Almighty God. Let me tell you something. The blood meant a lot. It meant a great deal to those people at that time. And Peter is saying to the early believers gathered in the churches of that time as they were considering this great supernatural redemptive act of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, the blood of Jesus Christ. I realize that some of the liberal believers out there and some of the squeamish conservatives don't like to talk about the blood. They certainly don't like to sing about the blood. But I say praise God for the blood of Jesus Christ because Peter says you were redeemed not by any anything that man could ever do or man could ever provide but solely by the blood of the Son of God the Lamb of God and ladies and gentlemen let me tell you something that's worth getting excited and giving thanksgiving to God for but not only that God empowers us through this supernatural redemption to he empowers us to live fruitful lives You'll notice there in verse 18, Peter's writing, as we talked about earlier in the introduction of this chapter, Peter's writing to predominantly Gentile believers. He's, these, these churches that he's writing to are situated in northern Asia Minor. So most of the believers are coming out of a pagan background. And he's reminding them of that. He's saying this, that you were redeemed by the blood of Jesus, but you were also redeemed from the aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. Listen, Jesus' death on the cross, Peter is saying, His precious blood has not only saved you from the penalty of sin, but it has saved you from following in the footprints of your pagan parents and grandparents who were worshiping idols, who were walking in darkness, who were living their lives for naught and on their way to hell. He says, you don't have to follow that pathway now because you've been redeemed now and you don't have to lead a life like your ancestors in, in pagan worship of, of dead idols and, and lifeless rituals. Because don't you remember what Jesus himself said? In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I am come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Do you understand the significance of that? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. When Jesus came and died on that cross for you and me and shed his blood for the redemption of our souls, let me tell you something. He not only gave us salvation, eternal life, but let me tell you something. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven to live the abundant life. Because in Christ, you and I are the only creatures on the face of the earth who are truly living. All the other people who are walking in the darkness of sin, deceived by the deceiver and, and caught up in false religions, they are merely existing. As Dr. Charles Stanley, pastor of First Baptist in Atlanta, often says, they're nothing more than walking dead men and women. They live their lives for what? For what they can accumulate, for what they can experience, and then they die and go to hell. That's a perfectly futile life. 
What is all their money going to do for them when they leave this world? What are all their memorials going to do for them? What are all of their great accomplishments and, and power and prestige going to do for them when they breathe their last on this side of eternity? Futility, futility, futility. But not for the child of God because we have been redeemed from that empty, aimless, spiritually dead lifestyle that those who do not know Jesus Christ. As we move further, we look at verses 20 through 22. He says, indeed, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in him. He, I look back at verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, understand something. Jesus was not a spiritual ambulance. Jesus was not some afterthought by God that things had gone awry and he needed a rescuer. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction by sovereign God to say, oh no, Mankind is lost as they can be. I've got to somehow send somebody to save them, rescue them. Oh no, the Bible says that before the foundation of the world, before God spoke anything into existence, He had this understanding with the Son that Jesus Christ would be the sacrificial Lamb of God who would come into this world and lay down His life Oh, listen, God had a plan. This wasn't something that caught the Lord God off, off balance and off guard. He planned him, speaking of Jesus. He sent him, speaking of Jesus. He raised him from the grave, talking about Jesus. And in his ascension, he glorified him all according to his perfect plan. Oh, this is a supernatural thing that God has done. And Peter's wanting the Christians and he wants us today to understand the significance of this which we celebrate in our salvation. But there was also, in addition to a supernatural redemption that we can celebrate and certainly ought to be humbled before God for, look at the, hum the supernatural purification that takes place. Look at verse 22. Peter says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. You know, I saw that Peter referring to about purifying our souls. And I couldn't help but be drawn back into Ephesians when Paul was using the analogy of marriage to describe the relationship, the wonderful relationship between Christ and the church talking about husbands and wives and I specifically look at chapter 5 of Ephesians verse 25 and Paul says to the husbands husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. There is a supernatural purification that goes on in the life of the believer that God affects. And I want to make sure you understand that. 
because we are purified not by our own works, not by our own rituals. There's nothing that you do to purify your soul in the presence of God. It's an act of God. But we do participate. We do cooperate. That's why he says there in verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, in obeying the truth is synonymous with faith. Because when you understand what the Bible tells you about who God is and who you are as a lost, wretched, depraved sinner, and you understand the significance of who Jesus Christ is as God's Son who died as a sacrificial lamb on the cross to pay the price for your sins as well as my sins, then when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then God applies that purification to us. How? Through the Spirit. As we obey Him, as we trust Him, the Spirit of God using the Word of God. Remember what Paul said, talking about the bride of Christ? He cleanses the bride by the washing of the water of the Word. The Word of God. The Spirit of God using the Word of God is what continually purifies us. You say continually. I thought it was just when I was born again. Listen, when he talks about you have been purified, he uses a past participle that implies past action with ongoing consequences. Every waking minute of every day that you are alive and you put your faith and exercise your faith in the Lord and the Spirit of God takes you to the Word of God and the Word of God highlights sin in your life, convicts you of sin in your life and leads you to make a confession of sin, He's purifying you. So chances are, if you're not reading your Bible and you're not a student of the Word of God and you're not applying the truths of the Word of God on a daily basis, dear friend, as, as politely as I can put it, you've got some soiled laundry spiritually. You need to go to the laundromat called the Word of God. Because this purification process that Peter's talking about is an ongoing process. That's what God has been saying through the centuries. You recall we talked about the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, God impressed this beautiful prophetic vision. How in the world can a wicked, immoral, rebellious, idolatrous nation like Israel ever find themselves cleaned up and presentable and favorable to God? And God says, you're never going to do it. Because all of your righteousness, the prophet says, all of your righteousness is like filthy rags in God's eyes. All your religion, all your rituals, all your generosity, it, God says it's just like a bunch of dirty laundry. But, God says, let me tell you what I'm going to do. In Ezekiel 30, chapter 36, verse 25, God says through the prophet, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. 
God says, I'll do the cleaning. I'll clean you up. I'll make you to be presentable in my sight. And I will cause you to be effective as my people. And if you go back to 1 Peter and you see that Peter said, since you have been purified and are being purified, then you're ready to be used. This supernatural purification presents you to be able to do something that pleases God. And this supernatural purification that he's talking about results in our being able to practice authentic love for fellow believers. To be able to love the brothers and sisters. That is a, that's a trademark. That is a qualification. That is an indicator of whether or not a person is a true believer or whether a church is made up of true believers. Do they love the brethren or the sisterin? There's no such word as sisterin. Sisterins are like things that hold water. Sisters. How in the world is it possible that we can love somebody like Christ loves us? You say, I don't think it's possible. Yes, it is. Or Jesus wouldn't have commanded it in John 13, 34 and 35. When he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love you and me? He died for us. He gave his life on a cross to pay the price for our sins. Jesus says, as I have loved you, you shall love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples. He's talking to his disciples. You shall love one another like this. John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his, for his friends, brothers, brethren. Listen, it's important that we practice this as God has described this. this. This love for the brothers is an indicator that we are truly being purified. And that we have been washed in the blood of Jesus and redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. Listen, if Christ has commanded us to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christians, then surely some skeptic will say, well, does that mean we're always going to agree? No. I heard somebody say, if you get two Baptists together, you'll have three opinions, at least. Well then, if, if, if we're to love each other, like the Bible says we're supposed to love one another, then does that mean that I've got to like every believer? Probably not. But we still have to love. We must. We can love one another because we have been purified by the word of God empowered by the spirit of Christ and washed in the blood of Jesus redeemed from our sins set free to live the life of a child of God as we move further and looking at verse 23 we look at the, our supernatural life having been born again do you remember Anything about your experience of being born again? I don't even remember the day I was born. But I do remember the process that God took me through. Beginning with the conviction of my sinfulness by the Spirit of God. And then the Lord prompted me to repent of my sins. And turn my back on my old sinful, self-centered ways. And to make a commitment 
to follow Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as my Savior and my Lord. Oh, I remember that. And that was something that God did, just like He did for you. It's not something you, you can't get yourself born again. Nicodemus was trying to rationalize that. Do I need to go back to my mother's womb and start out there? That would be something for an old Jewish Pharisee to show up at his mother's house and say, Hey, Mom, we've got to work this out. Now, it's ridiculous. Because this new life, this being born again, tells us, Peter says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. You see, just as our love is evidence of our new life in Christ, also the fact that we have this assurance that we have a new supernatural eternal life that has been bestowed upon us by the will of God. I've told you before, our being born again is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Our being born again is the result of almighty, eternal, omniscient, sovereign God choosing you and me. That's what Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 44. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. And so when we talk about this idea of salvation, let me tell you something. It's all because God chose you. He took the initiative. Think about it. In everything, God always takes the initiative. He took the initiative in creating us. As you read in Psalm 139, when he talks about how God formed our innermost parts and covered us in our mother's womb. Even at the point of conception, God takes the initiative in creating us. But God also takes the initiative in redeeming us to give us new life. But I like the way Peter describes here. He talks about you are not, you haven't been born again, not of corruptible seed. And in some translation, he talks about being begotten. You're begotten by incorruptible seed. Because you see, Peter is, is, is helping us to understand that we are the result of God's divine spiritual implantation, if you will, in that He implanted into us by His Spirit His eternal Word that gives life, gives eternal life. And Peter borrows from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, in verses 8, uh, chapter 40, verses 6 and 8, and you see that given probably in italics in your text, there in verse 24, talking about the power of the Word of God, which gives eternal life. Look what he says, quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 and 8. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. Now we can see that transpiring just right around us. After that first killing frost, all that beautiful green grass in my yard, just as brown as it can be, 
as you well know, many of you know, Jan and I live down in Netherlands, right on a golf course. Of course, I don't play golf, but anyway, but, but walking that, out in that area every morning, you know, all through the spring and the summer, I just admired those beautiful, green, plush, well-manicured fairways and greens and think about, oh, that's so pretty and so inspiring with the lakes. And then the day after the big frost, I walked the same trail. That grass is just as dead as a doornail, brown as it can be. You know, that's the way life is. Going along and thriving and you're bearing forth what appears to be fruit, the flowers of the grass. And, 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 and Isaiah said, you know, all the glory of, of man is like grass because one day you die. And if the flowers of, you know, the flowers that are attached to all those beautiful plants you see, they're gone too. And I think about all the people that invest their lives solely in the things of the world, striving to get rich, striving to have buildings, striving to have, you know, uh, positions of power and prominence and striving to get raises and striving to, to, to be recognized by other people and striving to accomplish academic uh, uh, accomplishments and striving to be somebody in the social scene and striving to have uh, extensive wardrobes and, and fill up the car or the garage with fancy cars and they strive and they strive and they strive and they die just like the grass. I was saying, boy, you're really pumping me up today, preacher. I feel good. I'm talking about the person who is apart from the wonderful supernatural redemption, who's apart from the supernatural purification, the person who is living or existing, I should say, apart from the supernatural life. They die, and I drive by beautiful old houses. I drive back up home going through the country sometimes, I'll see these beautiful homes that were almost like a plantation back in their heyday. And I like to imagine what it was like with their, their veranda porches and wraparound porches and they have all the, you know, the wood trim and all beautiful, but they're falling down. The paint's peeled, wood's rotten, the roof is caving in, the windows have been broken out. But you see, that's how life is. And if you're living your life banking on things of the world and what you can accomplish, you're like the grass that dies. And all the flowers of your accomplishments will die and fade away. But praise God, we're not begotten of, imper of, of perishable things or corruptible seed, as Peter puts it in verse 23, but we are born again or we are begotten of that which is incorruptible, the Word of God. Going back to Isaiah, Isaiah said the grass will grow, it will die, the flowers will grow, they will die, but he says the Word of the Lord endures forever. And those of us who have had the Word of God implanted divinely, supernaturally into our very souls that we caused us to come alive to live this eternal life that God gives through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. As long as the Word lives, we live. And that's for eternity. 
And Peter's reminding those first century Christians as Nero is is cranking up the fires of persecution and as the culture full of paganism is coming against those, those committed Christians and challenging their faith and even ostracizing them in the social and the economic arena and even threatening to persecute them. Listen, as the storms are beginning to brew and, and the times are becoming tumultuous and, and, and troubling for those believers, Peter is reminding them, you're not of this world. You're not like the rest of the society around you. You are children of God. You are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You have an eternal inheritance. You have been redeemed by the precious eternal blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You have been purified in the eyes of God, unlike the pagan crowd around you. And you, unlike your pagan neighbors and and, and bosses and other people, you will live forever. I think this is a very timely text. I'm talking about 1 Peter and 2 Peter. I think this is a very timely text for God to speak to us today. Because I know that you know that you look at the spiritual landscape of the nation that we're blessed to be a part of which is the best place in the world to live as far as I'm concerned with the freedoms and opportunities that we have. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that the mentality of our culture is becoming less favorable towards those who adhere to the teachings of the Scripture and call Jesus Christ Lord. But even knowing that, even knowing how secularism is, is, is infesting our culture and paganism is gradually on the rise here in America, we don't need to be intimidated. We don't need to be losing sleep over it. We don't need to be wringing our hands in desperation. Because Peter's reminding us of all the glorious, eternal, God-given benefits that we have And the assurances that no matter what happens in this world, we belong to the Lord. So I close with this challenge. As you meet with your family, friends, neighbors, whoever is going to gather around Thanksgiving with you on this Thursday, would would you dare to maybe not stop to give thanks first for the food or your family or your health or your prosperity. But, but would you dare to stop and think about that which you surely should be most thankful for first and foremost? Wouldn't it be great in Christian homes all through this community this Thursday as the dinner is prepared and the family and friends are gathered and whoever is going to lead in the blessing would say, you know what? We're not going to thank God first for the food and for our health, our family, our friends, our freedom. We're going to bow before God and thank Him for this amazing, unimaginable gift that He made possible to us called salvation through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, and the fact that we belong to a glorious, eternal family 
in a perfect kingdom called the kingdom of God. You're looking for a good reason to have Thanksgiving and to do Thanksgiving? I recommend you start right here. You know, we were singing that hymn this morning as we began the worship experience. Old traditional hymn going back to the early 19th century. Come, you thankful people, come. As you well know, I, I grew up on a farm and, and this was probably the best time of year for me. I mean, as a kid, I enjoyed it, even though I was still in school, which I hated. But, oh, stop up your ears, children. You're not supposed to hear that. But anyway, this was really the first, my favorite time of the year because we worked awful hard, awfully hard, from spring through the summer until we got our crops in. I mean, we worked hard and until we got the tobacco in and got it sold so we'd have income. And we harvested the corn and we harvested, you know, the uh, hay and for the livestock to get them through the winter. And, and as all these harvests were coming in, I love to sing this song. Come, you thankful people, come raise the song of harvest home. All is safely gathered in ere the winter storm. Listen, we had all my mom and made all the preserves and jellies that the pantry could hold. We had the flour barrels stocked with flour that came from our wheat fields. We had the corn crib full to feed the hogs so we could have meat to get through the winter. Listen, the, the tobacco fields were empty, which means I didn't have to get up early and go to work. We had everything was in and we were ready and this song said isn't God an amazing God that he has brought all of this and provided for us and now we can look ahead to the lean and cold winter months with a sense of security because God is a gracious God and provides so bountifully for those who trust in him and look to him but then as I was looking at the last two verses I realized it's not just about farmers Oh, there's going to be a harvest, a glorious harvest that ought to just cause us to leap with joy and do cartwheels because, you see, we are the harvest. Jesus says the, the, the harvest is, the fields are white unto harvest. We are the harvest. We are the seeds that have been planted in the good soil of our very lives. And one day, God is harvesting us to bring us all home into the barns of heaven, into the, in the homes, in our, our, our dwelling place in heaven, around the table where we'll feast with Him in the presence of all the saints, Old and New Testament, in the glorious presence of all the heavenly hosts. And we'll be free from pain and suffering and death and sin. And we'll be in the presence of the saints who died to save us and the glory of God will shine throughout all of heaven. Listen, that is a glorious a harvest. And that's what we can be thankful for. Is that's coming, folks. Sooner than we think. So I've asked Pastor Mark if he would to come and lead us in singing those last two verses and I want you to think about them as we sing them. And think about being a part of that grand and glorious eternal harvest that is to come.